Hello and welcome to the first episode of You Haven't Seen That, Classics Edition. My name is Chris and I'm joined by my co-host, Toby. Hello, hello, welcome, hello. And uh, this is the, the spin-off show where we're going to watch, instead of films that Toby missed in his childhood, we're going to watch classics of cinema that Toby has not seen. Yeah. So Yeah, I've just had better things to do in my, with my time, you know, growing up, so... See, you say that, but I totally disagree. I think watching classic films is a perfect way to waste your time. Look, these days I completely agree with you. But growing up, yeah. not so much. So it's time to, to look back and catch up on those films. What are you going to do? What what better thing to do than to watch classics of cinema as a kid? What are you going to go do? Go outside? Ride a bike? Come on. Yeah, can't do that now anyway, so... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So what better time to jump in, watch some classic cinema, and uh, what is our first film? The first film is Braveheart. In a land of timeless beauty, William Wallace was a man of peace. I want to stay here with you. And I with you. I love you. Always have. You say you want to stay out of the troubles? If I can live in peace, I will. But when they threatened his world... Edward Longshanks is the most ruthless king ever to sit on the throne of England. Scotland. My land. And the woman he loved. I want a home and children. That's all for nothing if you don't have freedom. He was driven to war. Go back to England and tell them there that Scotland's daughters and her sons are yours no more. The rebellion has begun. And who? William Wallace. Where are you going? I'm going to pick a fight. Well, we didn't get dressed up for nothing. We can't beat an army. We can't! And we will! If we win, we'll have what none of us have ever had before. Mel Gibson, Braveheart. Surprise, surprise, I've never seen it. And it is not what I was expecting. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we we will get into that. So yeah, uh, Mel Gibson's 1995 film Braveheart. All right, so you were saying this isn't, this, it was not what you expected. Uh, I'm intrigued by that because what, what were you expecting? Because this was a film that like seeped so heavily into pop culture and kind of just culture in general. It was so massive when it first came out. Oh. So so what what were you expecting? What did you know about this movie? Well, I knew that Mel Gibson was in it and I knew it was about the Scots and I knew there was battle scenes and I knew that he showed his ass in one point. Um, <laughs> and yeah, I, that's pretty much what I knew about the film. I didn't, like, I figured it must have been about some kind of historical battle or something like that. But I didn't, you know, I never paid any attention to it. It just just seeped through, I guess. Just didn't, wasn't my time. I was 10 when it came out. So, yeah, yeah, just just never got around to watching it. That's surprising, though, like, being sort of a 10-year-old boy when this came out. Like, oh, it's, seeing a film that is, you know, battle scenes and action it's and pretty and, pretty brutal. That's what I mean by not expecting yeah. it. Like, the, the first scene or whatever when... Um, the child walks into the room of the hanging people. I guess there's. Yeah. I guess we just yeah. don't care. There's no spoilers or anything in this, is there? So. Oh no yeah. no. <laughs> um, so yeah, that like that kind of took me back. I just was not expecting that at all. It's all right. It's all right. Easy lad. So I can understand why my parents didn't let me watch it as a 10-year-old boy. Regardless oh, yeah. of the fact that I'd seen Terminator 2 at that point, I can understand why they wouldn't let me watch this, like, pre-brutal... Like, it's not only that scene. It's quite some full-on, you know... Oh, it's an, that... it's an incredibly violent yeah. film, yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it's so... I, I, I wasn't expecting... I wasn't expecting that. I wasn't expecting that level of mm, violence, yeah, really. Yeah, yeah. All right, so... First impressions, like, I mean, right off the bat, like, you know, we'll get into it, but uh, did you like it? Did you not like it? I did. I, I did. I don't see... I don't... I, I, I probably don't hold it in the same regard as a lot of people yeah. do. Um, I, I did enjoy it, that's that's for sure. Uh, but 
Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a tough one. Like, it, it's... It's great, but there's so many things that are wrong with it as well. Like, there's lots of continuity oh, yeah, in it. There's yeah. a lot of things that just, a lot of things that just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. And it, it, so, it's hard for me to say that it's a real great movie, but I can understand why people love it so much. Like hmm. they, they fr- froth over well, it, froth yeah. over well, it. Well, that, that's a good way. Like, I guess let's just kind of go through the movie. Um, you'd mentioned already the opening of the childhood. Uh, I, that's something I always forget that that's how this movie starts. Like, you know, you've got a good almost 20 minute, 20 minutes of the film or so as with William Wallace as a small child and, you know, the death of his father and brother. Um, it, yeah, I always forget about all of that section. And then there's like, I understand why this section's in it as well, but the, the first love, like yeah. that whole 10 minute, like it, it's, she, she gets killed straight away and it's, I understand why they've done it, but it's kind of like, it, it, no, it, it's very sweet. Yeah. Uh, like, the reason uh, why you've got... I, this is what my theory is. Uh, the reason you've got that scene where, you know, they're at William's father and brother's funeral and little young Morin, who would go on to become his wife, comes up to him and hands him the scotch thistle. And it's like, you know, the, the music swells and William... Yeah, uh, like, like, yeah... I, but, but... I, I, got, I got all that. That's Yeah. But then, yes. then... You've got later in life when William eventually is an adult and, you know, in his early 20s comes back to the village and things and hands Morin the flower and he's kept it all this time. I love you. Always have. The reason that that's why that scene exists because I was watching this with Claire, my wife, and the, the second she undoes that handkerchief and sees the flower, she swooned. <laughs> she it, she oh, melted. Yeah, and so it's like, oh, of yes. Course. Good old-fashioned storytelling. It's like that... Yeah, like, I, I wish I kept, like, you know, a flower that my 12-year-old girlfriend gave yeah. me so I could give it to her 22 And then have later. the awkward line <laughs> delivery know? of... I love you. Always have. Hey, remember me? You haven't seen me in 15 years. Here's a flower that you once gave me. The f- I kept it. That's not creepy at all, is I, it? I know. If you put that into a modern-day context, you're like, you're kind of stalker. Stalker material <laughs> yeah. here, buddy. This is weird. You've been obsessing. I was like eight. <laughs> yeah. So how do you know where I live? Yeah. I mean, well, okay, the village is pretty small, so... Yeah, true. <laughs> um, true. But, I mean, also in that early on scene, like, you know, with William as a kid, you've got the great, like... It, it, it's that... It's classic storytelling. Like, you've got... Yeah, like his friend with the throwing of the rocks and all of that. That's, that's yeah. really great. But then yeah. you you also have the, his father instilling the values that then are, like, the through line for him as the entire film. I can fight. I know. I know you can fight. But it's our wits that make us men. Then you have the introduction of his, uh, Brian Cox's Uncle Argyle, who even doubles down on that knowledge thing of, like, you know, first I'll teach you to use Brian, this. Brian Cox, was that... Is his uncle or his... Father was that the old man who got shot, who just didn't go down? No, no, Brian. Like Brian all the battles? No, Brian Cox is his uncle who comes to take him to live with him, and he's the good. Oh from, yeah, with the one eye, with yeah. the glass eye uh, yeah, from yeah, Succession. Yeah, yeah. yeah I see, and I, I can't picture him in, in Succession. He's so. the main guy, like the the patriarch of the family. Oh, the old guy. Yeah, the dad. Yeah, oh. it doesn't look like him. He looks it's taller Bri- it, than Braveheart. It's Brian. It's Brian Cox. He he was uh, cinema's <laughs> first Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> yeah, but he looks taller in Braveheart. Okay. <laughs> well, it's because he's sitting on a horse. Yeah. Yeah. True. <laughs> <laughs> but like, yeah, it's that whole opening first twenty minutes and stuff. It it's nice and it does that nice like you know setting up the character and kind of really establishes for us that like we are watching an old Hollywood type of movie like this. And I guess that's the, probably the thing why this film was is considered a classic and so well regarded when it came out and everyone loved it is it's really harkening it back is very, to it. It is, it is very reminiscent of that type of cinema. Like, yeah. uh, it is def- most definitely like a blockbuster kind of... Not, not necessarily blockbuster. I don't think that's the right word that I'm trying to It's a say, historical epic. Yeah. Like, it's a long film. It's, um... Rooted it's, in history. Yeah. Like, Folk I'm, hero. I'm sure, I'm sure it takes a lot of liberties here and there, but um, oh yeah, it, it's, yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
But yeah, I, I completely get what you're saying with it, it mm. being an old, old Hollywood. It's like one of the last ones that, that still was being made. Mm. Yeah, it, and it was kind of yeah, harkening back to this old type of filmmaking. And, you know, it, it's, it's really the story doesn't... It, it's around this time when we have 20-year-old William coming back. And it's so weird that, like, the the thing that kind of incites it all is such a small offhand scene that, like, for years when I was like first saw this as a kid growing up, I just didn't even really register that that's what was happening. And it's the same with uh, Edward Longshanks, like, you know, discussing what is to be done with Scotland and, you know... Oh, pr- about um, Prima Nocta. Trouble with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. <laughs> Perhaps the time has come to reinstitute an old custom. Grant them prima nocte. First night, when any common girl inhabiting their lands is married, our nobles shall have sexual rights to her on the night of her wedding. If we can't get them out, we'll breed them out. Watching that now as, you know, an adult, you're just like, that is so messed up. <laughs> it's so messed up. And, like, as a young kid watching this, I'm just like... You don't, yeah, you just, I'm like, this is a boring yeah. exposition scene. Get to the fighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah that, that's that's how I felt now, watching it. It's like, yeah, I get it. Prima Nocta, that's pretty, pretty, pretty bad. I don't agree with that. But, yeah... <laughs> Can can we skip? Can we can we move along, please? I just want to see some more like Mel B- Mel Gibson Mel Gibson going off and killing people. It's see, that's, that's what this movie is. See, that's I, I'm totally opposite though. I am now watching it this most recent time watching it for this. I I'm like I want more Edward Longshanks, just Patrick McGowan chewing that Shakespearean scenery. Scottish rebels have routed one of my garrisons. Holy uh, crap! I, I, I do love his son. His son was his son. Oh, was Prince just Edward! Yeah, yeah, he's one of my favorite characters. Their 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 relationship is something that like like all of those scenes. Yeah, like you said, I you you just like skip it. Gets get back to William Wallace. Now I'm like, I want this. I want a whole movie of a brutal king and his very effeminate son who is not living up to his standards. Like, holy crap, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, it, it is. Like, that That part was very... That and, um... Yeah, that that whole element of it and uh, the Bruce... Um, Robert the Bruce. Bruce. Yep. Robert the Bruce. His, his dad. Did he have leprosy? What did he have? That's what I... I think he has leprosy. Or has he just, like, got gangrene all over his body? He, he's, slow, sure. he's slowly turning into a zombie throughout the film. <laughs> But I, I don't know where he came from. I don't know what he's got to do with anything other than I think he might be the King of Scotland, mm-hmm. maybe? Yeah. Oh, so he is. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, but I did like all of that kind of thing, the skeeving and the backstabbery of... Um, all the of, stuff that comes in, like, the third act there. Yeah. Yeah. Because like, when they got up to that big battle scene, um, it's about the two-hour mark or so, I looked at, I looked at the time and, like... What else? What else is they gonna do? Like this oh, is the yeah. the battle. This is the battle for Scotland or something right now. Like, okay, so there's still another hour left. What else could possibly be? Political intrigue happen? and betrayal. <laughs> um, oh, but well, can we can we put a pin in that? I want yeah, I want to sure, kind of yeah. circle back around to all of that like third act intrigue stuff. But um, what what I found interesting watching it again was how simple it really is structure wise like you've got like it opens you know you've got that you've half hour preamble of setting up characters and um you know william coming back to scotland i came back home to raise crops and god willing a family and then you have the incident with morin and the attempted rape and then the the overthrowing of the first garrison where you're just like okay it's on <laughs> like I could almost see it as being like a mini series to an extent. Yeah, it and but then like after, it's like once that ball has started going down the hill of like they take over that first garrison, and then it's it's just it's picking up speed and it's just going, and there's yeah. no stopping this the forward momentum of both the characters and the film where it's just like, but that's all it does from that point on. Like it is just. Well, no, it, I let's, see. I kind of. I, I disagree. Like, I think after, like, that battle scene, it kind of takes a big 
big uh well before that battle scene i guess it does yeah take I, huge... i'm t- like you know i i'm saying like up until when that second battle after they lose to the yeah. english that's like i'm saying up until that point it is just a a boulder picking up speed rolling down a hill and of going around sacking towns yeah. building an army sacking towns building an army sacking towns i, I love which the, is not a bad thing i love the scene with the uh battering ram um, at night time and they're just banging mm. on the doors to get in I thought that was a real great scene when they take over York yeah that mm. was that was great um, but but like I, it sounds like I'm being negative where I'm like saying it's just no, very no, formulaic no. and like this by this by this but what makes it interesting and so like fun to watch is how engaging it is and how much fun these characters are that we're following and like you you care and you want them to get their freedom yeah, uh, I don't know if I want them to get their freedom. Kind of on the British side here. <laughs> <laughs> nah, like, I, I do empathise with them and um, their, their, their plight, I guess, their journey. And I, 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 the, the last scene's pretty great with um, Rob the Bruce and them charging into battle and whatnot. Like, you mm. know... You want to see them succeed, even though they're they're fighting a losing battle. There's no way that they can succeed. So you are rooting for the the underdog. Classic yeah. example. So it it hits that classic film trope of rooting for the underdog. One thing that all right. So at a, at three hours long, how how did that go for you? I struggle with long movies like this. Admittedly, yeah. I watched this when I was feeling. I started watching this when I was quite unwell uh so Mm -hmm. i couldn't really concentrate so i got about an hour into it and then just stopped because it was kind of ruining the experience so i went back again and watched it from about you know almost that mark a little bit before just to remember and Mm -hmm. yeah if i was at the movies i could have sat through this easily but i don't know it yeah it's i struggled with it a bit like I mentioned okay. earlier, like I mentioned earlier, miniseries. I could see this being like a three-part miniseries, and I'd be absolutely fine with that. Or a four-part miniseries, that'd be great. But yeah, it's kind of it could warrant that. I could see it the, in this day and age with how good like short-form TV is, or whatever mm. you want to call it. I could see it really working. And do you think that's because of how it changes up so much, kind of in that third act? There's no, it's not like a solid, like, <laughs> it kind of feels like after, when, I didn't know that Gibson directed this movie, mm-hmm. and so when um when the credits rolled and it said directed by Mel Gibson, it, it all made sense. It's kind of like a madman's train of thoughts, and... Oh, yeah. <laughs> it the, the, Even though there is somewhat structure, it's kind of very loose, and I feel like... Oh, he does not care if you do not... Yeah. You know what's where, where, what the plan is, where we're going. Um, there were multiple points where I had to explain to Claire like where where we are, what's happening, and like uh, it was even down to one point after that second battle scene where they lose to the English, and there's that scene where they're on uh, the river, and um, Hamish, uh, beautifully played by Brendan Gleeson, is um, sort of trying to tend to the wounds of his father who dies, yeah, like yeah, he loses yeah. the old man, and it cuts over and you, you know pans over and you see William Wallace there as well, like, with the arrows sticking out of him, just looking defeated and crushed because, you know, he's discovered Robert the Bruce has betrayed Scotland and yada, yada, yada. Claire thought he died then. And then, like, thought... Yeah. And then, like, his... That dream seat, like, that guy has the dream of him and then he comes in on the horse. And then it ends up being true. Yeah. And then, like, he comes in with the horse and... That made no no sense. Is this Ghost Gibson or is this what? Yeah. I don't, Claire I, had the exact same thing, and then like it by the time it hit like the second or third murder yeah. of the nobleman, Claire was like, "Wait, so is is this real or is this dreams?" And I'm like, yeah, that's, "No, that's... it's real. He's just systematically now murdering the, all the people that betrayed Scotland." But at no point did we have a scene where that was established. Well, and and the the reason why that's so confusing is at the start of the movie, there's a scene where young William is like lying on the bed, and then his ghost father talks to him. Like his dead father lies That's... next to him, and so there's there's been like. See, I like s- that scene though. No, I'm not. I'm not saying it's a bad scene. I'm just saying that there's there's a pre setup. There's a setup for like, huh? 
he could actually be a ghost Gibson and this could just be all a dream. <laughs> you know? I, I like that, I like that scene that, too as well. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, again, that whole thing of like the idolising of the father and kind of instilling, you know, the morals that fictional William will go on to have. And yeah. But yeah, it's, it's that, and this is like my one problem with the film is it kind of, and why, like, I totally agree with you, like the, the three hour runtime is great in Till that last 45 minutes yeah, or so? Yeah, the last last Be- hour, last yeah, last 45, 50 minutes. It's just kind of all, because o- it's it, all over the place. Yeah, it, it's narratively shifts in such a drastic way in that it, like, you know, for what... like And that's like going back to what I was saying about how the, the first two-thirds of the film are so formulaic and straightforward, but not in a bad way. Yeah. Like, you know, it is just... It works. It's, it's a per- You know what their plan is, you know what, why they're doing it, what they're doing, how they're doing it, and it's got just that little bit of enough of all the political stuff, where it is, you know, after the, the Battle of Stirling, they all get knighted, and um, it, it's the trying to get Robert the Bruce to unite. Now, people know you. Noble and common, they respect you. And if you would just lead them to freedom, they'd follow you. You know, we've got enough of that, the political side of it, to to be invested as well. It's formulaic, it's straightforward in a good way. Then the third act is just... Just a mess. And, and it kind of, to me, as well, goes against what who William was as a character previously. Yeah, especially walking into the um, uh, the ambush. Like, why did he do that? Like, even his best friend goes, you to, know, it's to essentially a... become a martyr. Yeah, I, I guess, but it, yeah. it does. Like you said, it goes well. In the same breath, it doesn't go against his character because the last scene, him yelling out freedom as he's being oh like, no, tortured. yeah, like the the whole the whole martyrdom at the end. Like, I'm not meaning that. I'm I'm more meaning like for that whole first section it is established like you know i i want to live in peace you know this is what i want to do and he comes across as a kinder person than you would expect like there's the scene where like the the other people like villagers come to join him william wallace we've come to fight and to die for you stand up man i'm not the pope you know he just seems like a gentle nice guy yeah and then and then in the third act we don't we kind of shift away from following William to following people reacting to William. And well, the times when he shows up, he's just murdering everyone. <laughs> yeah, but again, that could also be... They kind of address that with um, talking about his legacy and all of that. Like, that's spoken about quite often. You know, the name of William Wallace. And the, even before one of the scenes, one of the, the fighters goes, I heard he killed, you know, 70 men or something like that. It was, it, Wallace, Wallace says it himself. William Wallace is seven feet tall. Yes, I've heard. He kills men by the hundred. And if he were here, he'd consume the English with fireballs from his eyes and bolts of lightning from his arse. You know, so I get... I, I guess the like the last forty five minutes or so is just the embodiment of of the living legend William Wallace, and that's him going and kicking ass. I guess that's that's, that's interesting. Like, yeah, I like that the the idea that the film shifts away from William as a person into more William as a legend, and that's what ends up being the thing that unites Scotland. Because that's not... how I that's kind of what I take away from like the whole martyrdom and him yelling out freedom. It's it, it the lo- the battle that he lost to yeah the battle that they lost that is the change like William well Wallace it's not just the, it's not just losing the battle it's discovering that Robert the Bruce betrayed them yeah and I feel a- a- and the nobles of Scotland have betrayed him like that's uh, yeah that, that was crazy good the guy who looks like Paul Shear um, <laughs> you know, the bald guy but yeah, yeah it's yeah. it's like even though that that last act is a mess I can. I can try to justify it or defend it in, in that regard because it oh, is yeah. just, it is, I, I could understand, I could see William Wallace as a character, uh, as a person, that last part of his life, like that last act of his life being a mess where he is just taking revenge as much as he possibly can until he gets mm. caught and then he's going to go down. 
you know, freedom. Yeah, it's it's almost like you can break the film down into the three acts of like the man, the myth, the legend. Yeah, you could, you, yeah, you could almost you could almost even justify the filming in that same regard as well. The yeah. way that it was shot and the way that it was, but that's probably giving Gibson too much credit. I don't think. <laughs> But that's the thing, like, and I always go, like, South Park, they nailed it, where they were like... Say what you want about Mel Gibson, but the son of a bitch knows story structure. Yeah, that's true. Like, he, he, and that's like, you know, obviously, we're, we're not addressing the whole Mel Gibson of it all. Uh, that's, that's an aspect of this film that has not aged well. Um, all I'll say about that is, he, he, he's a horrible person, like, that's enough said. Moving on. Uh, we're, we're not here to talk about that. Um, but... He's an interesting filmmaker. Um, the majority of the films he's made have been really decent. Did he do um, Signs? No, that was M. Night Shyamalama Ding Dong. Us too. Um, but no, like, after this was uh, Passion of the Christ, which I, I have a lot of issues with, but that being said, it's a very well-made film. And then I, I after that was... A, that. Yeah, it, it's. I have a lot of issues as to like why you would want to make that movie. I haven't seen um, that. And or then po- Apocalypto was the other one, wasn't it? I haven't seen that Apocalypto either. Apocalypto is fantastic. I I go to bat for Apocalypto a lot. I think that is a really well made and really great film. It is a. It's an awesome action movie, and that's the and that's kind of what Mel's really good at here. Is he's really good at constructing a well-made action movie. And then I think with that third act, it's shifting away from that action movie structure. It's no longer like... Because essentially the first act, it's like getting the team together, almost. Yeah, it is. It, it, it really is. Mm. And and then when he shifts away from that into the more political intrigue and drama, it's... You kind of lose a bit, a bit of it. It, yeah, it, I guess it becomes a little bit slow and not as fun because yeah, when he's like that scene when the um, Irish guy comes in. Uh, oh, Stephen the Irishman, who is the best character in the movie. Yeah. If I risk my neck for you, will I get a chance to kill Englishman? Is your father a ghost, or do you converse with the Almighty? In order to find his equal, an Irishman is forced to talk to God. Yes, Father. The Almighty says, "Don't change the subject. Just answer the f-ing question." <laughs> That was just fu- yeah. He is the best character in the movie. Um, I wrote that down in my notes. That was just yeah. that was just fun. Like uh, that was a real enjoyable moment in the film. And then yeah, it just goes into the more dryness of it. So it kind of wants to be like a political thriller and also an action film in the same breath. It's mm. kind of and it, like and it um, almost and it almost succeeds at doing both. Mm. Just mm. just it's not perfect at either of them, but it's great at both mm. of them. That's the thing, like, when you get to that third act, where it, it, it kind of shifts gears away from the action film stuff, you the film has done such a good job up until that point that you kind of don't care that, that the, the back third yeah. is not as interesting or entertaining as, you know. And, you know, like I said at the beginning of the episode, like, how much I loved Patrick McGowan as uh, Edward the Longshanks, it, I would... Like, and it sounds kind of contradictory that I'm like, I don't like the political intrigue because it's the Scottish side. Like, but and it's because they're not chewing the scenery like he is. They're not rolling their R, their R's and they're not throwing people out of windows. Who is this person who speaks to me as though I needed his advice? I have declared Philip my high counselor. Is he qualified? I am skilled in the arts of war and military tactics, sir. Are you? And tell me, what advice would you offer on the uh, present uh, situation? That was great, great. yeah. Just, just the, like, the subtle, oh, so fantastic. Tries tries to stand up to him and then just like, pop. Just so wonderful. But I mean, on that note, like, talking about Edward and, um... Uh, you know, his son. We haven't uh, talked about um, Sophie Marceau as the queen or the princess yet. I forgot how integral she is to the movie and how much she is a huge, huge part of it. Like, I I forgot she was in so much of it. Well, she's, yeah, in the later part of it. I I love the scene of her ruining the... um 
Longshanks, you know, dream, just on his deathbed. The baby's not oh. your son's. <laughs> yeah, that's so. Yeah, such a beautiful like just slam against that guy. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a fantastic way y- to end his life. Yeah, um, and I, it's I, like I, I, I. Sorry, sorry, you go. No, 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 sorry. Um, I yeah, she was she was great. I don't really have any thoughts too much on her. Like I saw her more as the romantic because of, because his wife died yeah. so early. I didn't see her as an integral... I know she was an integral part, but I didn't see her one. I just saw her as the romantic interest for the later half of the movie. That's how she came across to me. Um, Not that she's... Yeah, sorry. uh, Which is kind of the the thing that I have a bit... Like, nothing to do with her performance, but, like, character-wise. Because she was so interesting to begin with as someone who was, like, you know, thrust into this awkward situation and then used as a ploy, but then she starts to use that against yeah. Edward and it's like oh shit oh it's like oh man you are a you have agency you have purpose like you're cunning you you're you're one upping this this horrible villain this is great and then she kind of falls into the trope of just like eh but you're also just here to sleep with William Wallace and be a love interest yeah which was kind of came out of yep. nowhere a little bit and but, it almost yeah. feels like that was tacked on because 90s why do you help me Because of the way you are looking at me now. I mean, what else do you... Like, how else do you introduce her, though, into William Wallace? Like, other than being a love interest, you... No, but that... But that's what I mean. Like, you have her being that ploy in the trap and then, like, turning against Edward Longshanks and, you know doing a political intrigue thing but not and but then it goes that extra step of like and then she slept with him and because they fall in love and you're like ugh really that mm. was unnecessary also i feel cheated because at their wedding you know he and morin he says he'll never love another woman until the day he dies i love you always have cut yeah, to I... two hours later come on yeah i didn't like that he's not very no i felt he's <laughs> He's not very committed to his uh, true love, that's for sure. Yeah. Which is, as well, interesting. Like, he, um, you know, even Hamish kind of calls him on that at one point. Brendan Gleeson, when he's going to go into his battle or whatever, he says, like, you know, you're just doing this for Morin. Your dream isn't about freedom. It's about Morin. You're doing this to be a hero because you think she sees you. I don't think she sees me. I know she does. It's like, oh man, that's how this all began. And and doesn't, like, Morin show up when he's getting tortured at the end? Yeah, at the very end. That's the thing. Ghost Morin? Ghost Morin through the crowd. They love love ghosts in this movie. But it's great. Like, that that whole, that kind of, that got me. I I felt that's, and it's having her back there at the very end, and you realize she was, like, even though William was the man that led the revolution, she was the spark that lit it all. The catalyst, yeah, she was the catalyst. Yeah. Um, apparently, with that whole disembowelment torture scene at the end, apparently Mel Gibson, in Mel Gibson fashion, shot it in incredibly graphic detail, and uh, oh, they I'm, had to cut it. Be- I'm yeah, I'm not surprised in that, that yeah. regard at all. Apparently, this film got an NC-17 a lot, and they <laughs> needed to cut a lot of stuff out. <laughs> yeah, I would like to see the unrated one. <laughs> I mean, it is that thing where like Mel Gibson loves torture, and it's not. It's not... It's like Tarantino with feet. Where, like, it, for the first couple of movies, you were like, okay, that, that's that's a that's a running thing. And then by the time it gets to, like, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, it's like close-up of, like, Margot Robbie's dirt. You're like, oh, no, this is a thing. You this want is a thing that you, in, you really enjoy. This. And that's Mel Gibson as well. Like, I was thinking about... So it's, you know, Braveheart, Lethal Weapon, uh, Payback, Conspiracy Theory... Uh, Passion of the Christ is an entire two-hour film of nothing but torture. Yeah. Like, the guy has a thing. <laughs> well, look, there's... No, we're not, not here to kink shame, so... No, you know. no, that's it. Like, you know, to each their own. But, you know... Let, let him let him live his life. Yeah. <laughs> and if he wants to put a lot of torture porn of people dying on the big screen, I'm, I'm all for that. You can torture me all you want. I still won't tell you! Torture you? Ha! So you do intend to torture me, huh? Well, go ahead. Do your worst. We don't want to torture you. I just sure hope you don't use those whips over there on the wall. 
Is there a reason why he picked this story? Um, well, apparently it's been uh, he's, around he's, for a... He's, he's, not, he's not Scottish, is he? He doesn't have Scottish heritage. No, no, he, he, no he's Australian. I, yeah. I, know he's a, I know he's Australian, but he, like, he could have like Scottish heritage or something. No, it was just actually a script written by uh, Randall Wallace that had just kind of been sitting around for like a couple of years. Um, and I think it was initially at um, Paramount and things, and he read it and was like, he got originally offered a chance to act in it, and he passed. He was just like, oh, it's a, it's a cool script, but no, I'm not interested. Yeah. And then he ended up like just, it kind of stuck with him a little bit. And apparently, I think he was, I was watching some of the special features on the Blu-ray and he was talking about how, you know, he was on set for this other, uh, uh, like other movie and they, you know, it's like, oh, have you read anything interesting? And he's like, oh, there was this one. And he went to go explain this story to this person and then 40 minutes later was still going and he realized, huh, there's something to this. Mm. And he just started his production company, Icon. Um, and so he, he looked into it and it turns out it had been passed over it paramount and had moved into kind of uh you know limbo I think been gone. yeah limbo, limbo development yeah. and so he teamed up with alan ladd who had uh, left paramount and then like uh, i think did co-financing with paramount and 20th century fox and then um for releasing it and it was essentially they almost financed it themselves so alan oh, ladd really? jr who used to be the studio head um yeah they kind of bought the bought the script but um to help get some money from paramount and fox uh, paramount uh, released in the u.s fox internationally um, yeah. but, uh, to help, help get a little bit of money from Paramount, they, ins- and, like, cause Mel initially just wanted to direct, um, he thought he was too old to play Wallace, um, which is probably right, cause Wallace is supposed to be in his twenties. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, but he, he looks, he looks young in what, he looks young in one scene and then he just, for the rest of the yeah, movie, he, he was like, 30, he was yeah. 39 when yeah. he made the film. You can tell. Um, but yeah, it. Uh, to help like finance and to allow him to direct and stuff they said yes we'll give you some money but only if you star and so that's sort of why he yeah okay interesting because that was his that's uh, the first one he directed isn't it first film second second he he directed the film the man without a face Uh, okay not saying that don't know my mel gibson filmography it's fine but like let's talk about mel as a director quickly he like man without a face is fine it's like a standard kind of 90s drama thing it's fine uh but this he he comes out of the gate swinging really like he's you can tell he's looked at you know ben Hur- william wyler films um kubrick with uh spartacus it does have even down to like some kurosawa it stuff, does stuff have a very ben Hur vibe that's for sure Massive. yeah and it's it's i think I think he's very smart in knowing, like, A, get a good cinematographer, uh, which was John Toll, who was fantastic, like, the, a, a lo- shot this Yeah, the, a lot of the set design and all of that is, is the production design is, production, production design, production design was, mm-hmm. is um, really good, like, yeah, it's, I, I wish more f- films were made like this. Mm, and, like, I was shocked when we got to the Battle of Sterling, where... You're like, oh, none of this is CGI. Yeah. That is like close to two thousand extras. Yeah, it's it's really Im- that is it's, real. It's really <laughs> impressive. Uh, there's there's certain things that kind of like mentioned a little bit before with continuity, which is such a minor thing, but it does does mm. bug me sometimes. But there's Hit him running into battle. Oh, like the perfect is when he goes and picks up Ma- Marion, whatever, for the very first time. Morin, and it's pissing oh, down. and then it's all it's pissing down with rain, which jumps on the back of the horse. And then next scene, it's sunny and they're dry, like riding through a meadow, and then it's raining again. It's like what? Not, <laughs> not just that, but it, it's supposed to be night yeah. as well he says do you want to come for a ride with me on this evening yeah and then it's and, daytime and, <laughs> and then it's night time it's it's so just disjointed like yeah claire claire and i were like okay maybe this is like a montage style thing of like their their entire court yeah like this is a different day and then it comes back no he drops it back and yeah. like, it just Whoa. just makes no sense so there's like and there's like another one it must have just been with her oh no because it was with the princess when she goes down to see him in the jail and gives a gives him a uh, the oh the, the elixir yeah. or whatever and yeah. the guard is like she tells the guard to get get away and he he closes the door and it's very obvious that he closes the door very next scene doors wide open 
It's like yep. it's little, and, and it's I mean, tiny little things like that. It's like, come well, on. You, you haven't even talked about the most famous one, where it's uh, during the Battle of Sterling when he, you know, is leading that charge into battle. Uh, he goes from having a sword in his hand to an axe to nothing to an axe to a sword <laughs> to a nothing to a shield. Didn't even notice that. <laughs> It, it, it's hilarious. Like the int- every time it intercuts back, he's got a different weapon in his hand. So I guess that's more um, of an editing kind of thing than anything else. Or, or I just chalk it up to like a Scorsese approach, where you're like, continuity doesn't matter yeah. as long as the filmmaking and the performance is what matters. Like, it, if you're doing your job, it, it can, continuity doesn't matter if people are entertained. Yeah. Well, look, I I, I agree, but. These are two moments that's like stood out, <laughs> stood out to me, yeah. and we're talking about them right now. So I can I can understand mm. the standpoint from Scorsese, but like I don't notice much con- continuity things wrong in his films because they're not noticeable, but they're yeah. noticeable in this film. Yeah, because you're, you're so yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Um. All right, so we've talked a little bit about Mel as a director. I want to talk about Mel as an actor oh, that's now. <laughs> he's pretty goddamn bad in this. Like, even... Like, I remembered, like, when we got to the Battle of Sterling, I'm like, ah, oh, here it comes. The, the famous speech. Yeah, it's, uh, yeah. It, it's, it's very well written. It is... And it's the best thing, apparently, um, while filming that scene, whenever Mel would yell, his horse would get spooked and run. So you can see that he's clearly trying to deliver the speech that scary while also horse. managing the horse. Like, oh God. Well, he said yeah. it himself that he didn't want to be in it, like from what you've just said then. Mm. And the only reason he's doing it to finance the movie. So yeah. but he just wasn't committed. He's, he's, like he, I've seen him act he's okay. Serviceable. But he's, he's very one dimensional, I find. Like I don't see him having yeah. much range. Not that this character really required much range, but a bit more emotion, I guess, rather than... Gibson's stagnant face and just very yeah, and it's it's the thing of Mel Gibson. He's an old he's he, an older style of actor, I guess. I he's oh. not a great actor, but and I mean obviously massive asterisks with who and what he is now. Like he's charming. Yeah, he is. He's really charming on screen. Like that first time when he comes back to the village. And it's like the festival thing, and he's doing the rock throwing with Hamish, and it's he's super he, charming. Because he's showing emotion there. Like he, he reminds me of he's not a great actor, but he's charismatic. He's he's kind of like Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise, or like a Ryan Reynolds, yeah. someone who just seems like you know it's very charming and seems like a nice guy. So Jim Jim from Jim from the Office, yeah, John Krasinski, a perfect example. Yeah. Like you know. You're just like, oh yeah, you, you, oh, benefit of the doubt that you're not the greatest actor because you just, you, you seem to be a good, charming man. <laughs> yeah, like I'm not, not dissing on his acting or anything like that, but it is, I just, this is, I, it, I it am. works, it's, it's serv- serviceable, <laughs> serviceable is, uh, is the right word for this movie. And here is where I put in the clip of my favourite line reading of all time. I love you. Always have. Just, just, I mean, he's trying. And, yeah. I mean, I, I don't blame the performance, you know, on him. Obviously, he had a lot on his plate <laughs> making this movie. <laughs> so. A for effort. Yeah. But, um, I know, was there anything else that we've we've missed with this one, or? Oh, uh, look, I think, um. Ah, uh, what did I write? Is there anything I wrote? Oh, yeah, there was a lot of horse death in this movie. Oh, yeah. Okay, so on that note, actually, uh, so the ASPCA actually launched a formal investigation into this film, um, but it's all fake. It's all fake Of horses. course it I didn't, didn't think that that, that would be... No, but, uh, yeah, but down to the point of, like, Gibson has a standing thing where he will give, like, $10,000 to someone who can actually pick where the fake horses are and still apparently no one has oh really um and apparently there was a massive like like i said the aspca and people like did a massive investigation for animal cruelty and so they had to be shown a whole bunch of behind the scenes footage to be like no this is how we did it and this is how like you know where and proof and that's crazy yeah so it's very yeah it's very impressively done oh it it is but it's just like for someone who wants to eat a horse it's really really like tasty (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, the other thing that I've written down is when they're like going around sacking town to town and all of that kind of thing, when it's Gibson and his mm-hmm. merry men, like merry followers or whatever, why do they run everywhere? They run from town to town. They, they don't march, they run. Why are they running? They would run out more of cinematic. energy. <laughs> they would run out. It's of... more cinematic. It's it's. I I, I know the same thing as like... uh, the two towers where where you just see Gimli and Aragorn and Legolas just running everywhere. <laughs> Everyone's running everywhere. That's what it is. <laughs> it's more cinematic than just having people walking through the forest. Oh, yeah, I, look, it gives I, it gives a sense of urgency. Yeah, I, I agree, but it's just. It's just funny. It's just one of those other things that's just funny about this movie, like the continuity stuff. Yeah. It's like, why are you running? Aren't you going to get tired? Yeah, so that's, that's pretty much it. Yeah. Um, I mean, God, okay, on that note, actually, continuity stuff, just the final one I'll bring up is, um, so the Battle of Stirling, uh, it was actually the Battle of Stirling Bridge, um, but they decided to film it uh, on a big old empty field. Of course. <laughs> instead, of, instead of a bridge. Yeah. Um, easy, easy. And apparently... Apparently, uh, you know, uh, Gibson, uh, a bunch of people actually asked them, like, why are you, why, why didn't you film it on a bridge? Like, it was a, the Battle of Stirling Bridge. And, like, why didn't you use the location? And Gibson's response was, uh, well, for filming purposes, the bridge kind of got in the way. It was really difficult to film, like, you know, to try and maneuver. So the bridge got in the way and Scottish people, res- uh, fa- the famous response was, yeah, that's what the English found as well. <laughs> I'm like, ah, Scottish wit. You gotta love it. Oh, uh, yeah, it's really um, But on that note, do you want to hear a little bit of trivia about the movie? Yes, yes, I do. So, the film had a budget of $53 million. Oh, that's pretty cheap. Uh, and it went on to gross $213 million at the worldwide box office. So, nice, like I said, massive. Yeah, that's a nice massive ROI. Hit. <laughs> It was nominated for 10 Academy Awards, and it won five. Uh, the, the ones that it won are Best Makeup, Best Sound Effects Editing, Best Cinematography, Best Director, and Best Picture. Gibson's won an Oscar for Best Director. And Best Picture, He because he produced the film, so he's got two Oscars. Wow! Um, apparently, uh... He could EGOT. The, it, well, I found it so funny. He was up against, uh, the no- films he was nominated against, uh, was, one of them was Babe, uh, directed and oh sorry, produced and written by uh, George, Miller, George Miller, his old uh, his old Mad Max buddy. So they were nominated <laughs> against each other. Um, Two Aussies. Um, but yeah, Gibson. Uh, oh, and also apparently, um, this uh, it was nominated against Apollo Thirteen for Best Picture. And the Ooh. day when the uh, nominees were announced, uh, Mel Gibson was on set with Ron Howard making Ransom. So they found really? out they were nominated against each other. On set together. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. Uh, so Gibson also won the Golden Globe for Best Director. The film won three BAFTAs for Cinematography, Costume and Sound. Uh, it was listed as one of the top films of the year by the National Board of Review, who also gave Mel a Special Achievement Award for filmmaking. And it currently sits at number 78 on the IMDb's top rated movies. Hmm. Yeah. I get it. It's a crowd pleaser. Yeah, exactly. I get it. it. It's that nostalgia thing as well. Like, it's, you know, I get it. Um, do you want to hear some alternate casting? Yes, I do. I was actually going to ask who they would prefer to get for William Wallace. Yeah, I've got a, I've got a fair bit of alternate casting here. So, uh, Sir Sean Connery uh, turned down the role of uh, Edward Longshanks uh, because he was too busy filming Just Cause, the uh, film noir with Lawrence Fishburne. Uh... Gibson originally wanted Jason Patrick to play William Wallace. Jason so, Patrick, who's that? Uh, Lost Boys, uh, Speed 2. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The two that uh, Mel wanted was Jason Patrick or Brad Pitt, and then there's some studio suggestions as well. It would be a completely different film. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it Having no offense, like, Mel's a big, broad... Yeah, Dude. I, I couldn't see Brad Pitt being yeah. William Wallace. Brad Pitt's kind of scrawny. Like, yeah. not in a bad way. Like, you know what I mean. Like, he, he doesn't yeah, have a no. physical presence there. Um, the other ones that the studio wanted, uh, this is a, a super interesting list, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis. Uh, yeah, I could see that. Liam Neeson. I could see that. Uh, Christopher Lambert, the Highlander himself. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Jeff Bridges. Yeah. 
or Robin Williams. That would have been amazing. That would have been interesting. <laughs> that would have been amazing. Uh, and apparently, uh, Jodie... He's, he's got the hair for it. <laughs> and apparently, Jodie Foster was considered for either the role of uh, Princess Isabel or Williams or Morin. So. Yeah, I think I, they did all right with who they got. Yeah, I, I really like Catherine McCormick in the role of Morin. And um, yeah, Sophie Marceau is great in everything she does. So, perfect. Yeah. There. Um, so I guess that'll probably bring us to the end of the Braveheart discussion. Um, big question then, Toby. First time watching the film. What, overall, what did you think? It was very enjoyable. I would probably watch it again, maybe in another two or three years' time. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, yeah, I liked it. I liked it. Good film. Does, does it deserve its place among classics? Oh, that's a good question. I I would say yes, just purely, even though I may not be a f- super fan of it, I would definitely say yes, it does. Yeah, especially for that nineties era, it is. Yeah, it is. It's a quintess. It's a quintessential movie. It's um, it, it's a just a big, good, well-made blockbuster. Like it, it's the same, not not the same as Jaws. Nothing really is, but it's still that same kind of big, bombastic kind of good well-made film that deserves yeah. the credits that it's got. It, it, it's like one of those once-in-a-decade kind of epics that comes around. Like, you know, yeah. we had Braveheart, yeah, it's, we had it's Gladiator. It's an know. epic. Yeah. So we need, we need to figure out some kind of scale. Yeah, we, we really should. <laughs> like, that, it, well, that's why I'm asking, like, you know, in the pantheon of classics, yeah. I guess, like... Is it is it Jaws classic or is it? Um... Well, I, that, I like that idea. I think after we get a few films under our belt, we can say like, well, is it Citizen Kane or is it more like yeah. Sparta or Ben Hur? Like you know, you can find yeah. a. We'll, we'll start to find a scale and where to put things. A middle ground. Yeah. yeah. Um, so at the moment, we this uh, Braveheart gets a solid rating of Braveheart. <laughs> yeah, that's a good scale. Yeah, it's a good but, rating. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so would you recommend this movie? What would you give it out of a score of A to C? Braveheart. I'd give it a Braveheart. (laughs) Now's the time in the episode where we pick the film for next episode. So, Toby, would you like to do the honours and let people know what the next classic you're seeing is? Yes, we are going the uh, good old musical route with uh, some West Side Story. It's uh, going to be interesting. Some, some gang, gang, gang warfare. Yeah. Some gang wars. Yeah. So, uh, thanks for listening, everybody, to this first episode of You Haven't Seen That Classic Edition. And, um, yeah, we might be back with a, with a standard uh, episode with Eric, maybe. We're, we're trying to work something out there. Uh, so we'll keep you posted on that. Otherwise, uh, thanks for listening and tune in uh, for next episode on West Side Story. For this week's episode, I'm Chris. I'm Toby. See you next time. See you guys, have a good day. Please rewind this cassette before returning it to your video library.